Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by Raptor Aid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook. Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. For our final Facebook Live lockdown interview, I spoke to broadcaster and naturalist Chris Packham. Now, I'm definitely old enough to remember Chris as a blonde-haired, punkish-looking, really wild show presenter. But most people will probably recognise Chris from his BBC Springwatch and Autumn Watch presenting. Now, it was fantastic to talk to Chris about all things raptors, what makes him tick and which raptor gets him rubbing his thighs in excitement. Chris has been really, really busy during the lockdown period, keeping you all excited about the natural world. And so it was great that he gave us a bit of his time to chat to Raptor Aid. If you've enjoyed this interview and the other interviews that we've uh, turned into podcasts, please, please, please give us a like, give us a share, subscribe, and maybe even give us a review. Our new interviews are coming out every three weeks here on the podcast. Our first one is out with Ian Newton, and we are just about to record our second one, which we'll be sharing with you in due course on social media. So give us a subscribe and watch this space. Hope you enjoy the interview. Right. I think we are live, Chris. Uh, so welcome to Raptor Aid's uh, page. Thank you very much for being the final of, I think we've done 24 Q&As over lockdown. So I really appreciate you taking some time out and capping her off. We've had a, a few friends of yours on it. We had, uh, I've just mentioned off, off air that we had Steve Roberts on last. So, oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, um, I'm, good, I'm good friends with Steve. Although I insulted him, but I'm quite good at insulting him because I said, thank you very much for coming on, Steve. I really appreciate it. And I said, and then I mentioned to people, oh, we've got someone really special on next week. And Steve was like, in his, you know, what Steve's like, he's like, oh, fantastic. What a way to welcome me, Jimmy. So, so yeah, um, I, I know him well. He's a top bloke. <laughs> he's a very, very knowledgeable birder. And uh, did he show you his um, Philippines Eagles pictures? Well, I was there. So I'm the man. I took him to the Philippines. So, yeah. <laughs> not that I'm I envious think... or anything. You know, not that I'm envious. Yeah. I've, I've not seen Philippines Eagle. It's, it's been up there on my list. And we did schedule a trip to go there a few years ago um, with the Philippines Eagle Foundation. Um, yeah. and something to do with the Philippines Tourist Board, but unfortunately it fell apart because the nest that, that, that in that particular year, this is going back about eight years, I suppose, were not in particularly good places. I wanted to photograph them, so they weren't in particularly good places, but it's still, you know, if we ever get, get traveling ever again, um, it's, it's one of my destinations, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. I was sat next to Steve when an adult female came over the top of the hide and alighted on the nest in front on, on the, in the chick. But anyway, I won't, I won't make you any more jealous than, than that. So yeah, amazing. Been there. Um, right, okay. So 
I normally start dead, dead simple. And uh, sorry if these are all questions you've answered probably a million times, but I always start the same. One of the things I always wanted to achieve with these, um, these Q and A's was just for you to explain to people where it started yourself, where you found that love for the natural world and, and, yeah, where, where did it all where did it all begin for for you? Well, the, nat the natural world started really young. Um, my parents say that I would be, you know, crawling around the back garden in Southampton. We had a very small house there with a very small garden, and um, and it was ladybirds and tadpoles and all those sorts of things that I could find. Violet ground beetles. I remember the smell of violet ground beetles. I always liked picking them up and sniffing them. They had a really pungent odor. I miss that. I don't see violet ground beetles anymore. And um, and so it was there. And then, I, I, you know, I was fortunate. My parents and grandparents bought me books on, on birds for my sort of first and second birthdays. So I loved the pictures of, of, of the birds, although birds weren't my first love. You know, it was always things that I could capture and keep that I liked best. It was tadpoles in jam jars and caterpillars in jam jars and then latterly reptiles in tanks. And, you know, birds were you know, elusive, they, they flew away and I didn't have any binoculars at a very young age, so I couldn't see them clearly. Uh, I love finding dead birds and, and picking them up and, you know, being able to see them properly. I remember finding a dead starling at the bus stop and being absolutely entranced by the plumage. I took it home and snuck it into the bedroom and looked at it later. Um, but, but I didn't get into birds until I was um, about 12. And my dad bought me the Heinzel, Parslow and Fitter field guide and uh, and, and he bought some some, bino oh, some binoculars turned up from somewhere I don't know where they turned up from but anyway and uh, and it was then that I, I got into birds and I got into birds again through you know I'd always be out looking for stuff um, and I started finding birds nests so I got into nesting big time and it was yeah. that that got me into birds and then I had a really good biology master who got me to do maps and map out all the nests and count the eggs and count the young and all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, that was when I was, I say 12 or 12 or 13, but uh, I was quite obsessive, you know, so I'd latch on to one thing and then I'd read about that and think about that and absolutely nothing else. And then it would switch to something else. So I went through bats and otters, like all young people, dinosaurs, well, although dinosaurs have never gone, I'm still massively into dinosaurs. Um, and then, yeah, and birds sort of took over. The, the only thing was that I, I, I wanted to study birds when I went to university. That was my plan. But I, yep. got, um, I got sort of wrapped up in a badger study. And so I ended up studying mammals at university. I did uh, badgers and common shrews. And uh, I did a little bit of sparrowhawks but pri and prior to that, kestrels. But, yeah, so for that period of time, I spent most of my time with a head down the set rather than in the nest as it in were the nest, so to speak and funnily enough my one of the other things i was going to ask you next was about who was an inspiration and you you mentioned a teacher we, we i i never had that growing up i'm my parents were very supportive but i never had a teacher and i'm talking to a few people doing this a few people had that someone in school that managed to encourage them and you know steer them yeah i, I didn't have a great time um really at yeah, I was okay up till I was about 12, actually. And then things started to sort of go quite wrong at school. It wasn't a great environment for me. Um, I loved learning, you know, I loved all of that. But, um, well, I loved learning the things that I was interested in, not the things that I wasn't interested in. That was a bit of a struggle. And so I wasn't, 
wasn't an ideal pupil and I didn't really like the school environment very much but I, I was very fortunate I had this uh, biology teacher young young biology teacher called John Buckley and he was massively he's a great naturalist you know he's always been a great naturalist and he was into um, barn owls and we collected pellets and analyzed all of those and yeah. he taught me how to trap small mammals and uh, and all those sorts of things he was a great sort of mentor but the key thing that he did was he he got me in you know into keeping notes and and then counting things he got me into science a long time before most young people get into science and that was enormously advantageous to me because by the time I got to university I'd published a couple of papers and things you know which was precocious but yeah. thanks to John you know because of his encouragement and and uh, and that was great and then when I got to university I was fortunate again I had some really good you know, tutors. Prior to that, another guy called Alec Faulkner, who steered me through sixth form college. I was warring with the world at that time. I was um, massively into punk rock and the Asperger's wasn't doing me a world of good. Um, so um, I was warring with the world. So Alec Faulkner got me through sixth form. And then um, I, I went to Southampton University. Roy Putman was my tutor. He was great. But I also had the great fortune to meet Ian Newton at the okay. time university and uh, that one Saturday afternoon was enormously uh, formative for me um, he was he, he was really really kind to me when a lot of people weren't being very kind and um, and of course he published popular he published loads of stuff that I'd read by then um, most importantly um, how to silence a poodle um, Nancy Nancy thanks sorry um, the, uh, he published Population Ecology of Raptors, the Poiser book. Yeah. And I read it from cover to cover and then backwards and then upside down in the dark and everything. I, and I loved that book, you know, and it was along with Leslie Brown's new naturalist, Birds of Prey. Um, they were my two sort of love to reads, you know. And um, when I met in Newton, I didn't know what he looked like. And uh, I was giving a, a talk about some, a study of kestrels that I'd done when I was 17. So I was full on punk rock, you know, and I'd gone to Oxford, the EGI conference to do it. And to say that I stood out like a sore thumb would be an understatement of enormous magnitude. Anyway, I stood up and much to the horror of some of the um, <laughs> attendees and I gave my talk. And when I finished, uh, this man who had been sat in the front row and I'd noticed had been paying, you know, like, quite detailed attention leapt up and ran forward to shake my hand and said you know what a great study well you know that's really good and did you think about doing this and why didn't you do that and all that sort of stuff and uh, it was Ian Newton and I, I was like on cloud 29 you know the guy's a legend and and at that time and I was getting quite a lot of grief it was so you know reassuring to know that if you had a an intense interest in at that time you know it was birds of prey yeah. science it didn't matter what color your hair was or what you know whether you had a leather jacket with studs on you know all that cut through for ian and he, he didn't he didn't give a damn he was just interested in enthusiastic young students and it was it was a fantastic man I've, I've never met ian but he's I, one of the things i i love about monitoring birds of prey is the people I get to meet and work with. So Steve Roberts, for instance, is, you know, he's a good friend now. And, and yeah, people like that out in the field, it's just a, it's well, I, work, I, I work with two, I mean, you know, I'm talking about Ian. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I work with Ruth Tingay and, and Mark Avery. And I mean, and from, you know, they are equally sort of legends in contemporary conservation for me, you know, 
Um, it's an enormous privilege to not only know them, but to be able to work with with them. Obviously, I've known um, Mark for a long time, not as a you know partner, business partner, and 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 sort of colleague, but for a long time whilst he was at the RSPB. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I think that they represent you know the the formidable face of of British conservation. You know, they don't pull their punches. They're really clear thinking, intelligent people. Um, who are enormously dedicated and who think through everything they, you know, th th they do. Um, yeah. And they're remarkably, you know, well-informed and uh, they're just two, just two great people. I love spending time with them again, you know, and Mark's a, a, a mentor outside of that as well. You know, there've been a number of sort of important decisions I've had to make, um, professional decisions, and he's my sort of go-to guru because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know I'm going to get a level-headed, sane, sensible, considered, and and you know reasonable, rational, and 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 you know good good feedback from Mark. So I've made a number of sort of pertinent phone calls at the right moment to the right man, and I'm greatly indebted to that. Oh, good. Well, that's no. Well, it was a pleasure to talk to both Mark and and Rufus and and Ruth. Yeah, we I got yeah got a lot of good feedback. Well, from both of them really, or from from people tuning in. So, uh, so yeah, you're a, you're a lucky man to have them in your corner. Um, okay, birds of prey. Going back to the youth, I I have read your book. It was quite a while. Oh, have I listened to it on an audio book? I might have cheated. And There is an audio book, yeah. yeah I, think, I think I listened to it as an audio book because I was, I tend to when I'm doing boring jobs, I'll put an audio book. Anyway, the, you had a castrel when you were younger. Um, yeah. My my background it, for many years was Captain Birds of Prey. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've worked with them for years. I don't anymore. Um, and so, yeah, how the, the castrel was a big part of your life at one point, wasn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, that's un yeah, again, an understatement. So <laughs> basically, I, I, one afternoon after school, um, I went to a bloke called John Davis's house, and he lived above a shop at the Triangle. And um, he had an egg collection. And I, you know, I was into the birds, and I was finding all the nests and all that sort of stuff. So I went, you know, I didn't know him really well, but I went, I went back after school to see his egg collection. And he had a kestrel's egg. And it was the most beautiful thing, you know, of all the eggs that he had in his, in his collection, that one stood out, you know, it was just that beautiful, rich, russet color, all of those speckles. I mean, I can remember being there now and seeing that egg and, you know, just falling in absolutely in love with it. And that made me think I've got to find some kestrels nests because I'd found a couple before that, but they'd had young and I'd found a dead youngster beneath the nest, which I tried to, um, you know, mount taxidermy but it didn't work because it was too too young the feathers were you know hadn't grown out of their sheaths it makes it really difficult to to mount them certainly if you're an amateur um anyway so the following year i sort of set out to find kestrel nest and and i started um i i, I found 70 square kilometers between southampton and winchester and i determined that i'd find every kestrel's nest in that area and um so i got on my bike pretty much forgot about homework got on my bike every, every day throughout the year and cycled about and mapped them all and climbed up to those that I could get to most of them and um, counted the eggs and John came along and we rung as many of the youngsters that we could get access to and he was a ringer and and 
and that was the sort of start of my love with birds of prey. And, and then the following year, sparrowhawks were not, not a, a bird that we saw much of here in the south of England in the 60s and 70s. You know, they disappeared due to persecution and the pesticide thing. I mean, they were around, but you never, you know, it was a real treat to see one. Um, mm -hmm. And then I found a sparrowhawk's nest quite close to home and, you know, oh my goodness, that was so exciting, you know. And I remember climbing up and again with John ringing those youngsters, it was a, a, a amazing. And then I also um, met up with a guy called Colin Tubbs and Colin Tubbs worked for, you know, as it was then the Nature Conservancy Council, now yeah. in England. And he was based at Lindhurst and he'd written a book called The Buzzard. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I met up with him and that was when I was studying, you know, badgers and, um, and we'd mull over lots of honey buzzards and buzzard stuff. And again, you know, he was, it was real privileged to be able to spend time talking to him. So birds of prey set in at that point and, and following finding all the nests, I, I, I determined that if, this was at the brink of the point where I, you know, initially it was all about stuff that I could keep. So I had to put it in a jar, I had to put it in a tank, I had to put it in a cage. And it was at that transition where I was beginning to realize that actually you could learn more about it if you just left it in the wild and watched it. But the kestrel came at that point. So I still wanted to sort of own one. And I went and got this kestrel from one of the nests that, we, that I'd found um, when I was doing my study. And, um, and I had it for that summer of 1975. And yeah, it was uh, undoubtedly the uh, best summer an extraordinary you know relationship that i had with that with that bird and, yeah, and, and i mean I've, I've loved kestrels and well sparrowhawks ever since hold on just a sec sid sid <sighs> try to garden for wildlife you know and the dogs just flatten all your planting <laughs> so yeah two poodles for you <laughs> um yeah well for, yeah is we talked about a bit about the connection you get with birds because we had helen mcdonald on as well author of h's for hawk um, i know yeah before steve so obviously she goes into it in great detail in 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 that book um because are you still um are you still am i right in thinking are you still president at the hawk conservancy i haven't made not that. actually but I still have a, you know, a great fondness for the Hawk Conservancy. I think they do, you know, brilliant work um, in terms of their conservation, their education. Um, you know, it's a fantastic place. The standards of husbandry are outstanding, best I've ever seen. The falconers that they they use and the displays that they do are are um, are absolutely, you know, amazing. And um, so I'm a great fan of the. Uh, of the Hawk Conservancy and hopefully I was going to be visiting this weekend but now that the weather's not going to be great I'll probably leave it I was going to go and take some photos there yeah we've got a, we've got a, and that's another mutual friend Ash, Ashley Smith I'm good I get on well with Ashley I, I did try I tried to get him on to this but unfortunately during lockdown his allegiances to the Hawk Conservancy were too strong and so he he was doing videos and stuff for them rather than uh than me which is I understand it's it's fair enough so uh so yeah, yeah. I mean, so I'm what not... I because I've still got friends Oh, my my internet's gone a bit dodgy then. Sorry. Sorry. Um, I was just going to ask about a couple of friends have said on the run up to this. A few friends to me said, "Oh, ask Chris what how he feels about birds in captivity now." Then and, and um, so yeah, how do you feel about the, the birds in captivity and, and falconry and yeah, the whole well, that whole aspect? I, mean, I suppose. It's like everything else, you know, I, I like I like those sorts of things when they don't get too unregulated and commercialized, 
you know. So, I mean, when I was into falconry, which I sort of pretty much gave up by the time I'd left university because I didn't have the time to look after the birds properly and therefore wouldn't keep them. Um, then it was when they got into all that hybrid stuff, you know, and I, I don't, I don't get the hybrid thing. I have to say, you know, for me, you know, I love, you know, I love life and, and speciation is part of life. Um, and of course, occasionally you, you might get hybrids between some of those animals, but that would be very rare. That's the point of speciation. The point is that they have found their, their niche and they, they found a way of, you know, becoming an independent species. So twisting them all back and rolling them all in together. I, I never got that. And then obviously now we have issues with where some of the birds are worth enormous sums of money. And uh, recently, uh, Mark, Ruth and I, Wild Justice, were looking at uh, a site in Scotland where people were essentially hacking gyre falcons. And, and they were put, turning out large numbers of gyre falcons in one small space under license. And our question was with SNH. And, question is why are you giving permission for this one site to have so many of these top of the food chain predators roaming around um, and you know and, and it's all about money because those words are worth a, a lot of money and they're going overseas this year licenses as you will, will know were granted by natural england to take peregrines from the nest in the uk yeah. i mean this is again just about money i you know i'm not a fan frankly I, you know we breed peregrines in captivity they've had some uh, there was a little bird they had it was a it had a bit of lana in it because it had this little rusty mark around the back of its head which didn't appeal to me but it was called lark and they had it at the hawk conservancy and it was one of their display birds a little tearsaw i've never seen anything like that bird flying to the lure i mean it was relentless it would yeah, stoop yeah. stoop stoop and it did every stoop with venom and energy it wasn't messing around it was one of the, the most exciting birds you know ever no bred in captivity so i think you know, for, I, I just have a strong suspicion that the reason that those birds were taken from the nest, if they have been taken, I don't know whether that came to fruition. I mean, under lockdown, I mean, you know, no one else was meant to be moving around the country and all of a sudden someone can move around to, to take some peregrines out of the nest. And, and I suspect, I suspect, I mean, you might correct me, but I suspect that that's because, you know, that, you know, they're, they're going to make a lot of money for someone because people overseas will pay a lot of money for those sorts of birds. So I think the minute you get monetarization, you get lack of regulation, all of those sorts of things, then you get, you get problems. But, you know, I, I've had that relationship with a bird. It's very, I mean, I have relationships with my dogs, but it's very different, very, very different indeed. There's no real comparison. The intensity is the same for me, but the way that you interact with a bird is nothing like you interact with a dog or anything else. So, um, yeah. it's, 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 it, yeah, very, very intense. And I understand people want to maintain those. Would I ever go back to it? Well, I always used to say that, you know, if I ever got a chance to retire, then I'd love a goshawk. I read TH White's The Goshawk when I was, a, you know, 12 or 13 or something. And, and yeah. you know, that mad, mad bird, that mad book. And, um, and then Maverick Godato's Hawk for the Bush was always one of my favorite falconers, falconers yeah. book, you know. And E.B. Mitchell's Art and Practice of Hawking was my all-time favourite. The descriptions of that in the old days when they were catching those, you know, um, migrating birds using shrikes in, in, in Holland, the Dutch, yeah. the Dutch stuff. And then even those descriptions, that, which are unthinkable now, of, of ringing flights with larks and merlins, you know. So it's a bygone yeah. age, a piece of history, but it was beautifully written in E.B. Mitchell's book. 
would I go back to it? Well, I say I'd always sort of said if I if I retired, I'd I'd, I'd love a Goshawk, but I'm never going to retire. That's not going to happen. So I'm never going to get my Goshawk. And I'm really fortunate this year. I've had a nest quite close to me, and I've been watching the youngsters. I've got three of them out there at the moment. I, you know, I'm 59 years old. I get to see Goshawk every day when I want to. I mean. Yeah. If you'd have said that to me when I was 15, 16, 17, I'd, well, firstly, I'd never have believed you. And secondly, I'd have burst, you know, it, it's, it's just unthinkable. So I, I get to see them in the wild. I'm not sure I'd go back to keeping them, you know. It is, it's weird. That's a transition I went through. I, I mean, I, as I say, I, I monitored birds of prey and work with them in captivity. And then, yeah, I, I found that I got so much more enjoyment from seeing ah. A, you know, a peregrine or, or whatever the species was I was, I was watching than, than working necessarily with them. I, I, I understand the advantages of, of some aspects of captivity, but you, I think you're right, really, with the commercialisation. That's one of the reasons I, I got it. And one of the first things I did with Raptor Aid was, was, um, was stuck my head above the parapet regarding owls and poking strokes and started banging the drum about that. And yeah, the problem was it nearly became all consuming and I couldn't do any of the conservation and education stuff that I wanted to. So yeah, we might, we might revisit that, but that, that's another co commercialization aspect of it, which is a, mm. a real, a real shame. But, uh, good. Well, I think people have enjoyed hearing your thoughts um, on that. Some of my friends anyway, talk about, let's talk about TV because I remember you from, I'm old enough to remember the really wild days. So the, the, the blonde hair and, you know, big hair and, and uh, yeah, Terry Nutkins and Michaela and, and, and what have you. How, how did that come about? How did the TV come about? Well, I left university and um, as sort of virtually unemployable, obsessive ecologist. And I'd worked really, really hard. Um, and I'd written up my badger study and everything else that I'd done. I didn't, I'd always had this sort of yearning to do art. It's a, it's a, you know, I've got a studio out here. I'll go and make a mess on bits of board with paint. I've got to be doing something individually creative. Earlier today, I was taking photographs or trying to take photographs. Weather turned. It's now gone back to blue sky. Um, the uh, so there was for me. It was always about you know sort of you know zoology art, zoology art like this. And so when I left university, I was about to start a PhD on badgers, but I just about had it with badgers. So I dumped the PhD and then um, bought a camera. So I used to play in a punk rock band, sold all my gear and um, bought a camera. And because I thought that would be a fast track way to be, you know, creative. Um, I thought photography would be easy. It's a big mistake, of course, because um, I hadn't trained to use any other media. And um, I got a load of lockups and started making sculptures and painting stuff and taking photos. And then in order to pay for that, I got a job as a, a camera assistant with someone who was making, um, you know, wildlife films for the Bristol BBC's NHU natural history unit. Yeah. And I worked as an assistant with him and, um, and that paid for my Kodachrome and my, Oh, sorry. So I thought it was something interesting. I'll keep look up, gazing around because I've got a view behind the camera here and I'm trying to hope right. something nice is going to fly by. Um, the uh, yeah. And so and then I, uh, I yeah, I worked with him for about three years and then and, uh, and then I, I wanted um, I wanted to I had a sort of materialistic goal at that time. There was something I really wanted to buy and it was slipping out of my reach and I was getting really frustrated and not getting a lot of work. And um, and I had a job to go filming in Mexico and I had to pull out at the last minute because they hadn't had the right inoculations at that time. 
So I had like three months booked up and then all of a sudden three months cancelled. And um, I thought, I can't put up with this. I've got to make some money. So I went and did an audition for the Really Wild show. When in fact, they'd finished an audition. So I had to sort of virtually demand one and then, um, and then do it. And then they didn't make up their mind. And eventually I was on the dole and I spent the last bit of dole money on a train ticket to Bristol. Didn't have enough money for the taxi. So I walked from the station to the BBC. Um, because I'd been working as a cameraman on and off them, I managed to get in the building. And then I found the office for where they were making the really wild show where they were starting to set it up. And I went to see, and I walked up to the guy's desk and said, you know, you're going to get my, I won't tell you exactly what I said, because, <laughs> because I was in my early twenties and spoke my mind even more frequently than I do now. And, um, and I basically, you know, said to him "Look, you're going to give me the job or not. Cause if you're not, I've got other things to get on with. And he, liked that Mike Bainan his name was he he's a really good guy and he had some brilliant ideas and he liked people that just sort of hit nails on heads so he said yeah okay then I'll give you the job and that was it good work and then it's, yeah how long's it been now in tv sorry I don't want to make you feel old now but... well that was 1985 and we did the first okay. really wild show that winter of 85 86 um it was recorded obviously and uh, not live and um and I've been doing it ever since i've never never been out of work from that point there of view you go. 34 years old then because i'm an 85 baby so there you go just 34 to... well okay 34. <laughs> that makes you feel sorry <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> um obviously this spring watch as well we mentioned like steve roberts and and well done this year it was everything i, I really enjoyed it I, you know in and out catching bits and and everything I've seen on social media, people have, have raved about. Did you enjoy it this year? I know you've probably talked uh, about this more. I mean, I, I love, I don't like things staying the same. I always like things if they change, you know, and it needed to change. And this year the change was forced upon it. So we had a lot of technical, you know, uh, changes that we had to make and, and, and editorial and so on and so forth. Um, I think the most important thing was getting the mood right at that point, you know, and uh, we seemed to hit that zeitgeist and people liked it. Um, you know, it was a very particular and peculiar time. I don't think we'd do that again successfully. Yeah. I think we've got to think, think about what we do next. But we did learn a lot of lessons. And I like, you know, I like being, I like change. A lot of people need to be forced to, to make change. You know, I'm quite happy to tear things up and start again. But yeah. most people don't like doing that. So this was an opportunity to sort of get everyone to do something differently because they had no choice. So I did, I, I did quite like that. Um, Megs and I, you know, have been locked down here. And um, so it was good to be working at home, although quite stressful because it was just us and two cameramen. So we had to do everything um, yeah. with no sort of assistance, um, as it were, CE rather than T, you know, TS. Um, I'm not whinging it was it was just you know I, I did find it quite exhausting to be quite honest with you I mean yeah. all the zoom meetings and all that sort of stuff I find zoom quite challenging um, again because I'm not normally used to looking at myself and I'm not normally used to looking at other people so so the zoom thing was just absolutely relentless for obvious reasons it's the only way we could communicate yeah. to put anything together so that was pretty pretty tiring but anyway look ultimately you know i think you know as i say under a very particular and peculiar set of circumstances it worked and people people liked it we also had some good science in this year actually because i normally have to fight really hard to get you know i'm i'm the one that behind the scenes that's you know fighting for every scientific corner i love new science and we had quite a lot of it, that in there i was really satisfied that 
that we we hit that mark you know there were a few things i think we might have missed but then under the circumstances it was pretty tough so yeah, yeah. well i think all around the, yeah the feedback was from what everything i've seen was really really positive and and you know even people commenting someone's just commented tonight how good meg megan was as well um with you they people really like that so yeah good good work well done um I've had this, someone's put a question up twice now. So, well, not, not two different people have asked the same thing. If you were to be a Raptor for one day, it's a bit of a cheesy question, um, but if you were to be a Raptor for one day, which, what, which one would it be? Oh, my goodness. It's hard, isn't it? If we're, if we're broad about what we call Raptors, um, so therefore, you know, we push the boundaries because I don't think, you know, technically, obviously, vultures aren't Raptors. But yeah. Rappel's Griffin, you know, is the highest flying bird in the world. Got so high up once over West Africa, it would have seen the curvature of the Earth. That, you know, to, to do that without a spacesuit would be pretty cool. Um, yeah. Also, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who'd been putting some food in his bird feeder, and a sparrowhawk had come through between him and the house, which was about a metre, um, and snatched a siskin. And, he, you know, it's one of those things where you sort of blink and you thought, did that really happen? And, you know, like just just a feather on the breeze to tell you that it wasn't a dream. So to be able to fly like a goshawk or sparrowhawk that fast through woodland, you know, like a fighter jet flying. I mean, fighter jets are pretty good at flying through the sky. They can't fly through woods, you know, without yeah. catastrophe. So, I mean, that would be pretty, pretty sensational. But then, you know, I love I love the sort of I love I'm lucky, you know, I still see hobby frequently um all of that once jumped out of an aeroplane i wanted to know what it was like to, to stoop at 200 miles an hour so i did yeah. a tandem jump and uh me and the the parachutist sort of rather than sort of stabilizing that sort of skydive position we sort of went like that and um and i had this little thing tied to my ankle to see how fast we went and uh we hammered out of the sky and uh, so for for a few minutes it was you know I, I knew what it was like to be a peregrine falcon stooping yeah. <laughs> and that was pretty that was pretty sensational when I when I landed I just wanted to do it again I wanted to be a peregrine over and over again I suppose I mean ultimately the birds that now I don't see kestrels very much now because they've declined here and we've got goshawks and they seem to take quite a few things out um so I'd, I'd go for sparrowhawk and and then I'd go for male a little male sparrowhawk is one of the most beautiful birds in the world and when you see them sort of, as they do here, just bending around this cottage, you know, and they're, oh, it's just phenomenal, you know. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, we, I, we had a sparrowhawk the other day on the farm here, right in front of me, I was just opening the door to let the dogs out in the corner of my eye and it zipped this little musket, landed on the gravel, it just pulled out of trying to catch them and then in the blink of an eye, I was gone into the woods and they're incredible. But I don't know. Well, considering you've got to be it for a day and you picked a vulture first, that's a pretty icky one, I think, really. I don't know whether I'd want to be a vulture sticking my head in something's orifice of somewhere. Oh, but you, could, you could soar up to like whatever it was, like 14,000 feet and just sort of, you know, hang, hang out at high altitude of your own volition. I mean, what an extraordinary yeah, thing. They cope with the thin air, they cope with the, you know, in terms of their respiratory and their aeronautic capabilities. I mean, vultures, yeah. big vultures are just staggering. I'm not really birds of prey, of course, but, you know, staggering animals. But yeah, no, okay, I'd, I'd, I'd go sparrowhawk and, you know, tough call between goss and, 
and that, but I yeah, male Sparrowhawk. Fair enough. I'd probably yeah for me it'd probably be as you said I always said Peregrine, but my favourite in the UK is hobby. So I think just to think, imagine being a hobby chasing a swift or a swallow or even catching a dragonfly on the wing bends my head a bit. So, so yeah. Um, What about those guy hogs that spend the winter roosting on icebergs out in the North Atlantic, you know, so they're, they're out there in pretty much almost 24 hours of darkness on an, on a, on an iceberg hunting sea ducks. I mean, that's like something out of Mary Shelley. That's, you know, that's Frankenstein stroke Dracula land, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's so far out. Can you imagine, you know, being a bird of prey on a floating piece of ice in the North Atlantic, scoffing sea ducks? I mean, it's just outrageous. I could do a bit of that. I could only do it if I was one of the Greenland ones. I wouldn't want to be an Icelandic grey one. I'd have to be a pure white. Pure white. Pure white fancy ones. Yeah, I don't know. I still think I'd be. I like I like you know, Gia Falcons, but yeah, I don't, a peregrine. I don't think you can be a, a female peregrine. You'll like this story, Chris. Um, we I run a peregrine watch in our local city, and you've probably heard about the Exeter peregrines um, that bash buzzards. Um, well, we we I had it happen in front of my very eyes last year on the Peregrine Watch and several volunteers. So they went screaming off the tower, they nest, buzzed, buzzed in the distance. And this poor, I, I, I know it's nature and I, I'm fully aware red in tooth and claw, but this poor buzzard was done all ends up. And rather than fly in the opposite way, and it was almost like watching a movie, you wanted to shout, fly the other way. It kept coming closer and closer to the shot tower. And then of course, all hell broke loose and it was that tandem attack from male and female. And they folded it up like a, like a, I don't know what, uh, a paper bag in the air and it fell into the street right next to us. And I've never seen anything. I've watched, seen a lot of bird of prey stuff. I've never seen, anything like that and the female did all the damage the male was sort of like yeah we'll get you and then she came in and now the buzzard's in my freezer which is a bit weird but there you go so uh so yeah it's uh a fe- not much beats a female peregrine i don't think no in terms of the breadth of their shoulders the size of their feet they're so imposing when you see one yeah. perched and you get the sort of proportions of it you know they're they're, all, they're like that wide you know and then there's that beautiful back shape with the sort of square shoulders and the wings go in. And then all of a sudden, these ridiculously sized feet, the feet are way too big for the bird, you know. So, yeah, no, they're impressive. They are impressive. But the dainty little sparrowhawk living on the edge, it's got to eat, it's got to eat twice a day. It's got to kill two blue tits a day or it's dust, you know. And, um, and it's got to do it at hyper speed through woodland. Just amazing, you know. True. Okay. All right. Well, well, yeah, we'll leave, we'll, we'll leave that one. We had a, another chap on, um, Scott Mason did a Q&A for us. He runs a, um, a company out in Spain. He used to be based in Nepal doing parahawkings. So he said to you, if you want to come flying with vultures, you know, you can, you can sit on Scott's crotch and yeah, he'll take your tandem paragliding. There's an offer for you. There's an offer. Um, there was a guy called, um, Penny Quick, and he was a scientist in South Africa, did a lot of early work with that, um, with, okay. with vultures, and also white storks and pelicans as well. And I remember looking at some of his film, I'm just going back some time now, it was film probably, and not even, um, not even tape or digital. And um, yeah, absolutely remarkable. I mean, it's astonishing. 
because they were so close and they and he got right up in the thermals with all of these birds it was just absolutely amazing amazing yeah well there you go you can you can do that i think yolo's been i think yolo's been and done that because yeah Has he done it? Uh, i seem to remember a, a, a joke story about yolo tipping the full pouch of meat into his crotch i don't know whether it was intentional or not but there was a bit of panic midair anyway with uh with that but i, I know in yolo he probably did it on purpose but there you go uh, say no more uh right <laughs> you've, you've mentioned way back now that you, you're never going to retire so we've got to talk about campaigning and, and the work you do with with Mark and Ruth and Wild Justice, was was that a was that a natural progression then? Just listening to you talk about you know going in for the really wild show and you know saying am I going to get a job or not? Was it this sort of you're you're always going to move walk into that that sort of line of work? You're not you're not going to you know just stick to the day job of television presenting the day job's great and i'm very very fortunate to have that job you know i, I enjoy most of it you know I, the, the, the downsides are the same as every downsides in everyone else's life you know it's the travel you know the, the logistics of the mundane but apart from that i'm very fortunate to have that you know the, the job that i do um although it isn't just tv i spend probably more time not doing tv doing other things but ultimately you know the reason i do it I, I never wanted to be or needed to be on tv you know i i i needed to make the world a better place for wildlife so you know tv helps facilitate that which is great so there's a strong vocational reason for me to pursue that profession um because i need to try and as much as everyone else is trying to sort this mess out and it is a mess it's a it's a massive mess um and it's not a question of asking any longer, you know, to, to you know to get that mess sorted. It's a, it's a question of having to, to to demand it or do something about it. And so, therefore, you know, the idea of sort of, you know, going home and putting your feet up, putting your slippers on, you know, counting the counting the, you know, what what goes into the bank is an anathema to me. It's just not about that at all. You know, it's, for me, it's yeah. about, you know, tonight I've been doing HS2. We're about to launch into Hen Howyers next week. Um, it, it's that's that's what it's really about, you know. And you have to appreciate that, you know. I, and when I got into birds, it was 1970. We've lost 90 million birds from the UK countryside since 1970. You know, on my watch, you know, most habitats and monitored species in the UK have gone into critical decline. You know, I've witnessed species extinction. You know, my, you, it's easy to, you know, to say, and I'd find it difficult to argue against the fact that as a conservationist, you know, I've been a failure, you know, I, I, I failed to achieve the things that I aspired to, to do, you know, and, and that's, I think, because in the yeah. past, we, we relied upon other people to get things done. We, we thought they'd do the right thing. We thought they'd summon the right amount of energy. We thought they'd say the right thing to the right people but none of them were getting out of bed. They were just sleeping on the watch. So now we've woken up to that. Um, there's, there's no alternative that we, that we set the alarm clock and we get up and we fight every fight, you know, and, and, it, and it's becoming a fight because people don't want to change their minds quickly. That's the downside. You know, the human animal is a remarkably intelligent, resourceful, 
adaptable it's a great it's a great organism the human but it can't change its mind quick and when you point out to people that they're doing something wrong that's no longer compatible with the way that we need to think about doing things now and they will just want to hang on to what they were doing yesterday because they've always done it you know um it does it doesn't cut any ice with me i'm sorry i'm interested in today and tomorrow yesterday's in history great that can inform what we do today and tomorrow but it's you know it's like traditions if, if tradition doesn't have any contemporary relevance it's redundant as far as i'm concerned you know it's like fox hunting there is no contemporary relevance for fox hunting it, it, it's utterly abhorrent it's been abhorrent for ages there's no possible reason to be able to justify that in the 21st century let's end it you know we've ended sla slavery we're fighting racism we need to fight against that sort of animal abuse wild animal abuse in that in that sense we need to do it with the same amount of fervor and gusto as we're fighting for all of these things because you know racism is you know cannot be tolerated you know we we, we thought it was getting fixed you know, I remember in the 60s watching all that stuff when there were, you know, uh, human rights, you know, demonstrations, particularly in the United States. I remember watching that on Panorama, certainly through into the 70s around the Vietnam War and all that sort of stuff. And then you just go into some sort of safe little bubble where you think, oh, yeah, OK, well, all the progress has been made. Well, no, it hasn't. And it's the same when it comes to conservation. You know, we had saved the tiger. We have saved the whale. We had all that stuff kicking off in the 70s. We had Greenpeace that came in a bit, you know, a bit more thankfully heavy-handed later on. But ultimately, we've lost. Read the State of Nature report. You know, our landscape yeah. in the UK is essentially going to hell in a handcart. And so is that of the global environment. So, you know, when we think about bigger picture stuff, in 2008, the Committee on Climate Change said that, um, you know, that we should we should be really worried about a four degree centigrade rise in global ten temperature. And then last week they told the government they should prepare for that. Well, that's like preparing for the ultimate apocalypse. You know, that's millions and billions of people dying in order to try and cope with it. That's whole ecosystems being destroyed. You know, that's terminal. And, and we know it and there's no excuse. Therefore, if we know that that's, the, you know, you know, can't be countenanced and we know that we've got solutions we've got to implement them yeah. but of course we when we when we try to do that we meet resistance from people who've got vested interest or they just can't change their minds and that's why we get involved in fracas does that does it does it frustrate you because obviously and again t talking about your from the sort of when you started at the beginning of this chat and you, know, you published papers before you were 17. Does it annoy you then when people don't um, don't read the, the detail in, in what you're trying to achieve and they just sling mud and, and you know, counteract it with, with, you know, all sorts of crap, basically? Does, does that frustrate you or is it sort of like, well, we've just, I've got to take that this is part of the course because that's... Part, sure. part, of the, part of the process. It's just part of the process. We're asking people to change their minds more quickly than they're able to do so or want to do so. And as a consequence of that, when they get when when they're in a corner and it and it begins to dawn on them that you know that they're losing, then they just lash out. That's what unfortunately some humans do. And so from my point of view, I yeah. just see it as part of part of the process. You know, it's if anything, it just fuels me and makes me want to try harder. You know, I mean I, I think there were some some of, some of the things that have happened over the last 
you know, four or five years, maybe longer, of, um, you know, some of the approaches taken by the people that who have different opinions than mine have been entirely counterproductive from their point of view, because basically they've just poured fuel on my fire. You know, they should have thought about it, but they didn't because they don't think sometimes. Yeah. And, um, and that's the difference between the way that they operate and the way that wild justice operates. We do think we never react. You know, we always consider everything. We talk about everything. We let it, we, we, we wait and think and mull and pontificate. Sometimes not for long, if we don't have long, but we, we never knee jerk, you know. And we know where we come from and, and where we come from is a firm foundation of science and an ethical and moral right in terms of, you know, where we stand. So we, we feel strong because we, you know, we're in a good place to present our argument in order to, to change things to the way that they, we feel they ought to be. And that's, that's when you, you know, I don't know, it's like, a, you know, when they used to go to the Crusades and they had God on their side and the sword in their scabbard and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, it, it's, 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 and, and they felt so empowered, I imagine, to, 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 to do that. I was watching a thing about reading about the Crusades recently and wondering what, motivated people to do make those journeys and do that stuff you know and it was that compunction you know compulsion sorry that, that compulsion that they that they were right and I'm, I'm not comparing us to those crusaders in any political or historical sense but you know we have a real sense of justice and we're fed up with people getting away with things that they shouldn't be getting away with um, because they're they're not acceptable morally, ethically, or in environmental conservation terms. So we've got to change it. And if no one else, you know, I mean, let's face it, wild justice came into being because no one else was doing what we're doing. There was a, a vacant niche. Yeah. And so we, we had to do something. What, um, just what sort of, I normally say that a, 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 the last question is about what piece of advice would you give um, but just what we're talking about now, what sort of advice would you give to the, gem, the, the general fighter, the, you know, the, the, not necessarily conservationist, but someone that's watching this, that's got an, an active interest in the natural world, a real concern, you know, the, it could be anything, you know, the pictures we've just seen of the beaches in Bournemouth and stuff like that, or, you know, the pheasant shooting industry, fox hunting, what... What sort of advice would you give to someone that feels, you know, um, this is hard, this is scary? Well, it's, it's all about really, you know, from my perspective, it's all about recognising your own self-empowerment. It's about knowing that you can make a difference, that you do have a voice, that you must exercise that voice, that you've got to, you know, stop moaning and start doing. You know, you, you, you've, you've got to get up when everyone else is lying down, you know, and, and ultimately, as I always say, you know, you, you've got to shout above the noise. There's so much noise out there. You know, we, we, we turn on the news and what we get is noise. There's so much noise now. We can't actually see or hear what's right or wrong anymore because that's what they've done. They've, they've buried us with their noise. Well, if you take the time and you've got the mindset, you can see through that. And you can see what's right and what's wrong and what's good and bad and what you should and shouldn't do. And as a consequence of that, 
you know, you, you need to be vocal about it. And I think that, unfortunately, I, I, I think that there's a, we're in a, a strange place. We've got more of the answers than we've ever had before because we've been collecting data of all kinds, more than we've had before. We've got more technology than we've ever had before. And technology allows us to develop solutions to some of those problems that we've got the data to prove that they exist. But at the same time, we've got probably the worst global crop of decision makers that you could have ever imagined. I mean, I'm, I know there's been pretty bad times in even recent history. If you consider the last hundred years, there's been pretty bad times. But we're in a globally a really bad place with some really bad people. And you know, ultimately, therefore, we have to do it ourselves. You can either sit back and say, well, someone voted for them. So that's just the way it is. Nice swallows going over. But um, the, um, or, you, or you can get up and, and make a difference. And, that, and that's what you've, you've got to do. I, I, I don't want to sit back and watch the world burn because Boris, Bolsonaro and Trump just want to fill their boots. It's not going to happen, you know? Yeah. So... I think that we've all got to realize that to some, we've got to find our own pitch. There were some people who will want to just, you know, do that passively. There were some people who will want to do it more forthrightly. But ultimately, if we don't exercise our informed voices in a democratic and peaceful way at some stage in the next five or 10 years, then I think we're doomed. It's that simple, you know. When, when, you, when, you, when you've got people who are ignore, flagrantly ignoring the science, you know, in order to perpetuate their short-term greed, you're in trouble. And you've basically got to drown them out. You've got to shout above their noise. And that's what we're going to have to do. And I think now, after corona, what corona proved was, you know, amongst the plethora of things that, we've, that it's done bad to us what it what it proved was that when you consider your mind take your mind back more than a year to april when people like me were on the streets of london doing extinction rebellion you know climate change was an existential thing it was something that we couldn't possibly deal with the idea of grounding all the world's aircraft in order to protect the climate nonsense the idea of stopping all the cars in the cities to prevent you know prevent you know respiratory death you know uh, problems killing thirty thousand people a year in the uk absolute nonsense you know all of these things were impossible they're unthinkable but then all of a sudden we do them we do them because we have yeah. to because yeah. again you know the human species when it has to do something does it you know we are inherent survivors we've we've overcome every test that's been chucked at us throughout the course of history. And we will overcome corona at a cost. We will overcome it. But what I'm worried about at the moment is that, you know, the cost that we've really got to, to, to address is climate change and biodiversity loss. And, but what corona has proved is that when we need to, we can. So there's no excuses anymore. Don't tell me that we can't fix those problems. We can, we just fixed something. You know, fixed it completely, unfortunately, but we're fixing it as, as best we possibly can under a panic situation you know some no, good some bad yeah no absolutely i mean you're in it again i find it frustrating you know talking about coronavirus and and the effect it's had 
in the sense of you look at those images that, that are used where you, you can't see the, the end of the Great Wall of China. Coronavirus comes about and all of a sudden you, you can, you can't, you can't see the Taj Mahal right in front of you and, and then the smoke. And you think how, how that one picture, how can it be any more obvious that, you know, this can't be good, what's, what we've been doing, but yeah. Well, look, what it's proved is that, you know, our normal was abjectly abnormal. You know, our business was essentially bad business, you know, and it's buzzer. Oh, so hoping for Goshawk flyby. <laughs> and then I, I could have bragged, I could have bragged that of all the people you've had on uh, live, I could have had Goshawk and it was a buzzard. Can you believe it? Come on, buzzard. <laughs> anyway, whatever. At least I'm honest. Um, the, um, so, but I mean, you know, the key the key thing is it was it, we did we don't want to go back there, and yet that's what they want us to do. They want us to go straight back into doing what we did before because there's a conspicuous lack of imagination and there's a conspicuous you know um, desire just to get their hands back in the you know in the pie, and 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 the pie needs to be baked a different way. There's plenty of way for people to find employment have a healthy and sustainable um, you know future for them and their families, but it we, but it, it needs a rethink. It needs re rethinking, retraining, and everything, and that requires total support from from everyone. And it's a global issue. You know, we're one species with one problem at one time. And if we don't make one difference, then we're one doomed. Yeah. We're doomed. Yeah, I agree. I find, yeah, it's almost like it's that. I, I one of the other things I struggle with is the 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 lack of empathy a lot of the time with the with the natural world that there's. You know, we're on two different levels. You know, there's us in the natural world when it couldn't. But I, you know, I don't need to tell tell you this, or most people probably watching this. Um, it, it couldn't be any further the truth from that. That sometimes, uh, yeah, frustrates me. But uh, there we go. And um, I'm just conscious. I'm just watching the time. I, I know some people had asked about this and going back to Wild Justice, and and I, I can't possibly. You know, we haven't even talked about hen harriers. Um, and there's there's lots of stuff out there in in, in the press on hen harriers at the moment, but um, just I just wanted to touch on if we take the the, the legal action that's taking place with pheasant shooting at the moment, um, does it? How do you get round? Does it annoy you again, or if you probably again you're probably used to it, so I'm answering my own question. When when people are hell bent on not really listening to the facts and um and they can't see see the, the wood from the trees what how do we how do we get around that is it going to be always about legal challenges and or again is there someone's asked is there other ways that they can they can support because a lot of the time i find that people want to know what they can do i know we've just talked about that in conservation as a whole but specifically I, I get asked a lot well what can I do in that specific area so take pheasant shooting for, for instance and the, the legal take or fox hunting well I think that you've got to find avenues for you to find that voice that I was speaking about I mean and, and wild justice is one of those avenues we provide the opportunity to you know to do our bit which is the legal side there are other people doing other things, of course, campaigning, you know, in the same direction, but using different methods. That's that's good, actually. So there's not so much overlap. Um, but, you know, sometimes it is signing a petition. You know, we we, we launched a petition to ban driven, driven grouse shooting, the third one that we've done. 
and it got more than 100,000 signatures. Next week, the results of that petition will be um, publicized. So I'll probably not say too much. I don't know whether I'm allowed to say any more about it than that at the moment. But anyway, next week, yeah. we'll, you know, the result of that of that of those people having signed that will be will become public. So that's good. Um, and then you know, while justice, we work with a great you know team of lawyers. And, um, and we're very considered about the cases that we take. There's plenty more cases that we'd like to, but if they don't hold water, even if they're right, even if they're without any ambiguity, they're right. If they don't hold legal water, we're not taking them. We can't waste people's money. And ultimately, you know, we, we're publicly funded. People, we crowdfund, people give us money. They trust us to make sure that that money's well spent. And therefore, it needs to be spent on cases which are, we don't always have to win, I have to say. It's not always about winning. It's not about standing on outside the court with a smile on your face. It's sometimes about generating, you know, some of that noise that I mentioned, you know, to drown out the other stuff. But it's also about getting people to think. And, you know, some of the things that we've done with general licenses and, you know, the 50 million perhaps non-native birds which are released into the uk to be shot every year are to get people to think to get defra to think to get natural england to think to get the birders of the uk to think you know because when i grew up you know pheasants and red leg partridges they were just part of the bird fauna and that was in the 70s when there was nowhere near the number being released that there are now and like we go back to our point about falconry this is about commercialization this is about lack of regulation you know and the point is that when it comes to releasing these birds, you know, they've been getting away with not understanding what the impact is. And all, when you think about it, when you drill down, all that Wild Justice has done is ask the regulatory body, DEFRA, Natural England, um, to, to, to find out what impact releasing 50 million non-native birds, the largest avian biomass, the largest single species biomass of any UK animal, non-native pheasants basically at the end of summer has on on our ecology because we as scientists don't believe that it has no impact at all it's, in, it's improbable that it doesn't have an impact so all we've done nothing more is ask people to investigate that impact so that we can make an informed decision and that's exactly what we did when it came to general licenses we were concerned about the casual killing of birds because people were going out and shooting things because they could not because they needed to and at no point in that action did we want to damage anyone's interest um, in terms of their ability to control what they call pest species and so on and so forth. We just wanted people to think that is it is it right that they can go out and shoot jays? What harm do jays actually do? What harm do rooks actually do? What harm do jackdaws actually do? And the you know collared doves now a species in decline. What harm do they actually do? Yeah. Uh, you know, and. And, and I just think these are perfectly valid questions. So we're just raising questions for people to think about. And I think that thinking, you know, is, under, is underrated. You know, drinking is overrated. Um, and, and, and I think that therefore, you know, bodies like Wild Justice are there to, to, to get people to think and whether they're you and I, or whether they're government bodies or statutory bodies or NGOs, you know, that's, that's what it's about. So I think that, it, it, you know, if, if, if you agree and or you come up, you identify your own, you know, injustice, which is damaging to the environment and um, and to the species that live in it, then then you need to you need to you need to tell people about that, you know, 
you need to tell we need to share that as a community we need to collectively build our strength we need to you know make sure that we exercise our fortitude of numbers and uh, and, uh, and and so forth in order to affect change and and we want to do it we don't we, we're not bludgeoning anyone we want to do it in a democratic and a peaceful way that's why we have government pe uh, petitions that's why we take legal action through the courts which is justice you know right and wrong measured on the scales and all that stuff and and we will continue to plug away at that and i think that's what you've got to do do we think at any point that this is going to be like and something's going to change no unfortunately not but we, when you think about let's think about the hen harrow issue marks you know you know started that and and and, and then i came on board and and ruth as well a few years ago now but in the last 10 years look at the you know, look at what's happened to the so-called glorious 12th of the grouse shooting season. There were as many articles published in UK newspapers and, and in, you know, news sites online uh, about the negative aspects of grouse shooting as there are the positive, you know. And so, again, collective awareness has grown. We've been managed to identify a plethora of reasons why driven grouse shooting is, is not a, a good idea. And as a and, and we've disseminated that information in a way which is um, truthfully so that people understand it and, and they're on board and they recognize that this is not something that we should be continuing to do. It's something which is, should be consigned to, you know, history, like so many of the other things that we, that we did incorrectly. Well, again, that goes back to traditions, doesn't it? And yeah, always being able, yeah, always being able to, uh, I think it's important that you should always be able to look at what you do and, and always question it, whatever you do in life, in the sense of review it and say, well, I'm doing the right thing. But yeah, as humans, we we don't like seeing faults, do we? Certainly not in ourselves or something that we do. So, uh, so yeah, um, it's hard work. No, but it's not just about that, though, is it? It's, it, it? Remember, in the case of like pheasants and, and grouse, it, it's because, it, because of, there was never any regulation, because they've been getting away with it, um, it's now become it's big money and that's again yes. goes back to what you we were saying earlier that, that yeah. that's another problem now so you're not only fighting against people's ethics you're you're fighting against their collective financial interest in 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 perpetuating that and um and because it's worth a lot of money then they can be quite forceful in their argument and and you know and their campaigning and i think that the other thing that's interesting about conducting these sorts of um you know this sort of work at the moment is that we live in the era of fake news and and you know and the, the key thing is you know i go to my bed at night knowing that when it comes to campaigning i've told the truth as i know the truth and bear in mind that you know things change but i as i know the truth every single night you know i i, I sleep with i don't sleep very much actually when, when i finally get to sleep you know when it comes to campaigning my conscience is clear you know I, I, we don't lie we don't have to lie you know, because we don't have to lie about the fact that hen howies are being slaughtered on grouse moors because you've all read the news what's that's been coming out in the last month. You know, there's no, there's no, as I said, there's no ambiguity about that. So, you know, we can fight, you know, the, the, the true fight. And we, the, you know, the, the difference is that we're now fighting in an age where people can just lie about stuff and make stuff up. And they do, and you read it all the whole time. It's, sometimes it makes you laugh. Sometimes it makes you angry. Sometimes it makes you cry. But whatever, it makes you more motivated and, and, and more determined to, 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 to win out. 
absolutely. Well, uh, we've got a lot. Yeah, there's there's loads of loads of comments coming coming through, but I'm I'm just conscious of time. I don't want to I don't want to. Uh, yeah, keep keep going. We could I could talk all night, Chris, but I know you you've got lots of other things to to get on with. So I'm going to draw it to a sleeping poodle, like a meter away that um had a and had an operation yesterday that's looking like it needs a cuddle. <laughs> oh well, I'm glad that the interview managed to put the dog to sleep. <laughs> Send the dog to sleep. That's well, that, you didn't see what was going on behind the camera. They were racing <laughs> around the garden, um, you know, and then they've dug an enormous hole over there. I don't know what they were after. Probably a, a bank vault. Um, and in terms of uh, bird list this evening, so I've had nice swallow flyover, which was quite good. We're a little bit early for woodcock. And um, what's been most exciting about the lockdown here, I rent this farm in the New Forest, and um, is that we've had nightjar every night showing. Nice. Uh, close to us because the fields have all uh, not been grazed this year or cut um and so oh hello here's one i'm going to show you one now oh look at this oh. here we are now you'll say that that's not as good as a female peregrine you know <laughs> and and it can't stoop as fast it's not quite as predatory but well, I'm a, I'm a dog man, but I haven't got my dog. I've got wire-haired dash hound, so they, they, I don't know whether they supersede uh, poodles. So, yeah. I, like I call them woolly torpedoes. <laughs> well, I can't. He's got a bent nose as well, so he can only sniff one way. Um, so, so yeah, but I, I can't have him in the same room because he's just, yeah, he goes berserk. He's just carnage. But anyway, there we go. Dogs. Well, it's lovely to meet one of the poodles as well. And um, of Sid and Nancy fame. Um, yeah, so I was just going through my list. Um, goldfinch went over. There was greenfinch singing earlier. Blackbird's been around. The wrens I've been watching because they've got a, a little nest over there. Um, but the only bird of prey that deigned um, to, to fly by was the buzzard, common buzzard. So I'd, I'd, it could have been it could have been quite exotic. But anyway, there we go. <laughs> well, I, yeah, that was that was Colin Tubbs flying past. Yeah, to see yes. an eye on yeah. <laughs> exactly. Hot bloke. All right. Hot well. Chris, thank you very much for your time. It's been a, a real privilege to have you on. Uh, thank you for yeah persevering with me and putting up with me. So it's been a, it's been great. Have Not a at all. Evening. Not at all. Thank you for the invitation, and it's great to um you know, I'm very fortunate to follow in some far greater footsteps. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants when you talk to people like Mark and Ruth and and Steve, of course, who's a brilliant brilliant ornithologist. They're really the, good. The, well, the Welsh wizard, as I call him, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the wizard when it comes to birds of prey, he knows his stuff. All right. All right. Cheers, Chris. Thank you. All right. Good night.